The Bible reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, In the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when, a long time later, he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray with Hebrews 4 open in front of us, if you would. We thank you, God our Father, that your word is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us to hear your voice in the pages of Scripture this evening and to be tender-hearted towards what you would say to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever turned to the Bible in desperation to hear God's voice because it might be that you were really up against it in some situation or other. 
I remember a word study that I did once looking up every Bible reference I could find on a particular theme. I was 20 or 21 years old. I was living on my own in a grotty one-room basement apartment with a fold-away sofa bed there all year, double electric ring to cook on, little crack of window up high on the wall with no view, and I got sick. So sick, actually, that I thought it was all over. Um, I had no one to turn to. I was in France, in a suburb of Paris, on a language year out, teaching English in what they optimistically call a catching-up centre, and working part-time at the same time in a funny expat English church. And while I was sick, I just wanted to go home, uh, which I think is a familiar thing for lots of people on gap years, if they're in a funny place. They often get to that point where they hit a wall and just want to get back home to comforts. So I did a word study on the word rest in the Bible, not knowing what I would find. I looked up in a book, a concordance, which listed all the times Bible words were used. And really, I was wanting God to tell me that I could take time off and go home. I needed rest. Surely he'd have something to say to me on the matter, preferably a green light to take an extended break from a tough gap year. So as soon as I was feeling well enough, I got looking for every Bible verse I could find on the theme of rest. And I ended up thinking that God didn't intend me to get the next ferry home and back to the loving church family I was very dependent on at the time. That heaven, ultimately, was where I'd find rest. Yes, there are lots of great things about the Christian life and knowing Jesus now, sure. But alas, there was no guarantee that he would lift me out of my grotty basement flat. The rest was that I could have Jesus with me in that grotty basement flat. So I toughed it out for a few more months. But, I mean, that was a, a, a very memorable to me Bible study on a, a theme when I had an urgent question in mind. And I wonder if you have that sort of experience. And I can't recall how much Hebrews chapter 4 featured in that word study, but I think it's likely it did. The writer is in touch with Christians, possibly who come from a Jewish background, that seems likely, and who are now tempted to give up being Christians because the Christian life is proving hard. They started well. Uh, We learn that later on in the letter. But now some of them are are ending up losing property because of their Christian faith, it seems. Some of them are in prison. And they're tempted to think, well, anything for a quiet life. Surely I didn't sign up for this, Lord. Maybe they're hoping for rest. And this chapter gives them a Bible overview of rest to encourage them not to give up. Therefore, says the writer at the start of our chapter, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, it's quite a complicated chapter, so I am not going to go through every verse in order, but I will trace the rest theme in Bible order. And I've got three chapters to divide it in, if you like. Rest at creation. Rest forfeited and rest restored. Well, I probably have to make my voice go up at the end. Rest restored, question mark, at the end. If it's easier this way, paradise, paradise lost, paradise regained, question mark. Now we can supply um, that first heading from verse 4. Rest at creation is mentioned 
there. See that lovely way it's phrased, start of verse 4, for somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And the information he'd forgotten is that that's quoting from Genesis. There are one or two accounts of how the Sabbath was instituted. In fact, it's put even more strikingly in Exodus, a parallel statement, which says that God got his breath back on the seventh day, which is striking, isn't it? Um, He wasn't exhausted. Uh, We read, I assume that God spoke and it came into being. That tells you that creation was pretty much effortless for God in one sense. There's no suggestion that he was tired out by what he'd done. But that Bible language of resting and getting his breath back seems to me that's there to make make sure we get a vital message. God wanted to announce to all creation that after six days' work, Enough is enough. And he's so serious about this point that he chose to use himself as an example. And we'll often talk about the uh, the creation of the man and the woman on day six as the pinnacle of creation, but day seven has a justifiable claim to surpass that. This is a day which, in that account, is quite unlike any other day, with evening and morning on all the other days. This is a day with no end, when God rests. Now, what's it saying? Well, is it saying this? The world is very good, but it is not an end in itself. You could add work is good. And this is before the fall, when work becomes a sweat. Work is good, but God is no workaholic. There is more to life than work. And you might be glad to know that in an exam term. God's Sabbath rest is pointing us on beyond this world and its work, which is very important, by the way, for us to understand. There's a a need in the Bible understood for a work-rest balance. That's just a simple principle of creation. It's part of our biological makeup, a sort of law that's written into every cell of our body, which we're mad to ignore. But specifically, that rest at creation is telling us, all of us, that we're not made for this world alone, but to enjoy perfect rest with God. And I think that the world knows that, actually, deep down. Maybe that's why, even in a secularized society where most people have voted God out, still lots of us have a longing for something else which this world can't satisfy. I'm in a a rich vein of C.S. Lewis quotes at the moment. He said this, The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. 
I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. So rest in creation. And it leads, that quotation leads on to our next point in Hebrews 4 because by way of warning, he reminds us that God's rest can be forfeited. Paradise can be lost. Now we might expect him to talk of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, having started with creation, it might, in our minds, we might think, well, Genesis 3 is where to go next. That fall which had catastrophic results, didn't it? One moment, they were living in open friendship with God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, at home with God. Then, they disobeyed, and they were out of relationship with God, hiding from him. They were out of sync with each other, playing the blame game and even out of whack with the world. So creation itself was subjected to frustration by human sin. And absolutely no way back. Cherubim guarding the gate to Eden with a flaming sword to keep humanity out. It's awful. God's rest forfeited, paradise lost. So we might expect him to talk about that. But in fact, he chooses a different episode as an example of the same thing. Just three Quotes will make the point, I think. Verse 2, talking about a group of people, the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Or verse 3, in parenthesis, so I declared on oath and my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Or verse 6, those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Now he's referring there to the generation that we thought about last week, those who came out of Egypt with Moses. They were rescued supernaturally. Plagues, you think about it, the passing of the Red Sea. They were cared for supernaturally. The food and the water in the wilderness. Supernatural care and spectacular failure. They had the promise of rest, a land of milk and honey but they distrusted God and wouldn't keep going. And it's a warning to all of us. Rest can be forfeited, paradise lost. So the whole generation who'd been in Egypt died in the wilderness. You know, that little ditty. I'm not sure I've even got it right. It's something like this, isn't it? None of them made it to the land of milk and honey, save Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh. It's always hard to get a runny, a honey, a rhyme with honey, but Jafani just about does it for you. It's a very apt warning for us, though, in the time after Christ. I mean, those people forfeited rest and lost paradise, having had such amazing spiritual privileges. We mustn't think, obviously, that we are immune from danger. So let's move on to a final heading, just so we feel the force of the challenge. Rest restored. Paradise regained? Verse 6. I'll read an extended bit of the passage just to remind you of it. Verse 6 onwards. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. 
This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. The point is that Joshua's generation did enter the promised land. But even that, even when they got to the land of milk and honey, that wasn't rest. Or David wouldn't have called on his own generation to enter God's rest at that point, because they were in the promised land then already. So that wasn't paradise regained. Even at the high point of the Old Testament, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That was fulfilled when Jesus came, teaching words of great comfort. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, not just teaching. He died on the cross to grant that rest to us, paying for our sin. And therefore, says the writer, anyone who enters God's rest rests from their works. They don't pay for their sin because someone else already has. I can't help but think of Martin Luther in this connection. You know the story about him, I I hope. He was a, a German monk from the 16th century whose conscience would give him no rest at all. This is what he said about himself. He said, I was a good monk, kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. All my companions in the monastery would confirm this, and yet my conscience would give me no certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't quite contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I daily found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. So no rest in his experience. And he went on a pilgrimage to Rome. He looked at all the sacred relics that were there. He even climbed up the Sancta Scala, which was supposed to be Pontius Pilate's staircase, on his knees, kissing each step for good measure as he went up. When he got to the top step, he realized, he still had doubts, he realized he'd never find rest that way. And peace only came to him when he began to understand that righteousness wasn't a matter of his works, but God's gift. And that the rest had actually been won for him already by Jesus, living a life which we could never match, and then dying our death for us, paying for our sins, so we don't need to do so ourselves. And that was when he found rest. But, you know, we slip into Luther's mentality again and again. You think about it. If I fall into some sort of pattern of sin, how do I deal with it? Well, often it's not a matter of me running back to Christ and finding rest in him. I'll try and sort of redouble my Christian activities. I'll try and have a longer time of Bible study or um, spend longer at Christian meetings, invite more people to church. And those are good things but I will never find rest there. And wonderfully, I don't need to. 
What am I supposed to do? I trust his promise and keep going. He's done all that needs to be done to get me home to heaven. And therefore, I trust him and I just keep putting one foot in front of the other to get there. Or do I? Because if the stats are to be believed, I suppose it's worth me saying by a note of warning, this is an epistle of warning, if the stats are, are to be believed, there are people here tonight who will not be in church in 20 years' time, like that generation who followed Moses out of Egypt. Something's going to put them off course. Just one little thought experiment. Suppose in a few years, you or I come across the first Bible we ever owned. I wonder what, if you come across that Bible in a few years' time, what sort of emotions it would spark for you. Will it feel a bit odd to think, I used to read this Bible so enthusiastically uh, those days in the past. It's a funny phase. I can't think quite what I saw in it that mattered so much. Is that what you'll think? Well, I hope not. I, I don't want that to be so in my own case. Remember at communion tonight what Jesus did to restore rest to us when it was lost. And don't waste what he did for you. Don't cool towards your Christian friends. Don't cool towards the Christian friends that take communion with you tonight. Pray for them as they take the bread and the wine and be grateful for their prayers for you. Let me put it this way as well. You might um, understand this to be a warning that's apt for today. Don't make a Christian leader's downfall be your downfall. Because... Christian leaders were never meant to be your saviour. That place only belongs to Jesus Christ. Don't content yourself with a testimony to an old relationship with God. God always speaks to us in the present tense. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let me end with the challenge of verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Let's pray. We we come this evening, Lord, with praise for Jesus. We thank you that he is such a wonderful saviour that he laid down his life for us to secure rest and regain paradise for us. We thank you for the privilege of knowing him and therefore of knowing um, a relationship with you that in one sense we couldn't be closer to you than we are because of Christ. And yet we're still aware that so much is wrong in our world and in our own lives. We long for the day when that rest will be wonderfully um, fulfilled. We long for the day of Christ's return, of an end to our own sin and doubt, 
And we pray that, well, we depend on you, Father, to keep us in the meantime. Please watch over us and keep us persevering in trusting you. Give us strength, even this week, to make every effort not to fall. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.